creating more debate than AT&T's pocket-emptying acquisition of Time Warner, with the last one standing at the end of another brutal MIPCOM. It's the TBI podcast. Properly rested and relaxed after MIPCOM, or frantically trying to close those market deals before the scent goes cold. Here at TBI Towers, we've dusted down and jumped back on the horse. I'm Stuart Clark, editor of TBI, and I'm joined by Jesse Whittock, deputy editor and editor of TBI Scripted, and this is the TBI Podcast. Got a hot tip? Drop the editorial team a line via email. Let us know. Don't keep it to yourself. Before we start, a little plug for our sponsor, Blue Ant International, who are in Cannes with new titles such as the 6x60 Minutes Collision Course, which delves into life-changing and at times life-ending celebrity accidents, How the World Ends, a science documentary about how it all ends for everyone, and Africa's Wild Horizon, an 11-part nature and wildlife series about Africa's ecosystems. Blue Ant doing lots of interesting stuff. Okay, housekeeping over. So MIPCOM has been and gone. Feels like a long time ago, even though it's uh, still a matter of days. So the week as ever, or in fact the weekend, began with MIP Junior. Now there's an event that really needed a boost. Last year's was a washout, Jesse. As we know, it was uh, a washout literally. And, and, and figuratively. Um, it was, it, yeah, the, the rain came down at MIPCOM 2015. Uh, the event had to be moved from the Martinez up to the Palais. We all know the, the tragedies that happened around that. And, uh, and, and it felt at the time as if that was, in, in a sense, a representation of how the, that particular market was at the time but this year there was a, a market change Stuart yeah I think that I think that's absolutely fair so again in the Martinez somewhat drier this time um, a lot of competition coming from kids screen but I have to say the numbers were up you know in so much as you can read into what those numbers mean but it felt busy and buzzy there were kind of they've extended the red carpet stuff for um, from dramas to kids stuff so there was uh, Grizzly and the Lemmings and there's uh, Henson also launched something there as well. And they well. were big screenings right? Yeah Splash and Bubbles was the Henson one yeah they're a big deal people turned up there were parties and there were drinks uh, and it just felt that, that Mitt Junior really kind of was, was, was back on the map and as part of our survey of distributors we asked which which kids events they really considered must attend and, and Junior was really top of the list and I just felt that, that that came through this time. I think that the folks picking that together must be pretty pleased after the fact. Yeah, absolutely. So the ball basically is now back in, in Kid Screen's court. Yeah, I think so. I think so. I think maybe whereas Junior uh, has screenings and is a market, Kid Screen was a conference that then turned into a market where deals get done. But the screenings piece, particularly at, at Junior, really makes it feel that it's kind of something tangible it's more than kind of just people talking about stuff and, and showing their stuff and and one of the hits this year definitely was Simon which is a preschool show from Goen one of the French production companies uh, produced in France as well it, but they haven't farmed out the animation to somewhere else in the world that's cheaper they've opened up their own studio uh, it looks really cool it's a show that we've been getting behind because it looks good um, and that was the most screen preschool show and I think I think that that's one that pretty much looks sort of bang on to be a hit a trend we both picked up on, uh, Stuart, at this market, and I, I'm sure it's something that Reed Meadem would rather we didn't talk about, 
but was it's what something that you coined the the can mini break it did seem that there were many executives flying in earlier in the week so talking sunday nights maybe monday morning staying for a couple of days or maybe let's say 36 hours and then flying out so monday and tuesday felt very busy by Wednesday, there were distributors talking to us about the fact that there was noticeably lower footfall on the ground and that they weren't getting as much passing trade and that it felt emptier. And I think that's fair to say. But, I mean, it's not necessarily a bad thing. You know, they get there was a hell of a lot of people there on the Monday and Tuesday. But it's, it's interesting that it seems to be that the market is, in, in a sense, compressing itself. Yeah, I think that's, that's exactly right. So the weekend traditionally is MIP Junior or MIP Doc, if you're, you're thinking about the event earlier in the year. But this time, as well as kind of mingling and, and chatting to all the kids producers, suddenly you're seeing everyone there from kind of MIPCOM proper, if you like, on the weekend ahead of time. And exactly as you say, you know, the Monday, it was like, wow, this this really is, it's rammed, it's busy, everything's going on. Uh, but you and I, Jesse, you know, we both know people who actually are down in the bunker all week on the stands. And, and you know, we talk to them when they're finally let out of the, of, of the palais. And definitely people saying, Monday really big Tuesday morning but but there was a, a definitely a sharp tail off and that is definitely something for you know read medium to consider and we both know that they're looking at what they can do to keep people in town for longer because as an exhibitor you're contracted to stay there aren't you I think for the for the full duration as well so you need the buyers to be around for for the full week as well well exactly and and you know for those unfortunate souls that are there on the Thursday I mean it's uh, unfortunately it's like a ghost town in there for some people but like you say there, there are contracts in place and people have to be there so yeah it's it's a question for for Reed to answer how do you keep people on the ground you know it's a lovely place can um, as uh, in as much as a conference town can be the weather held up this time round if you've got those things in place what can you do to keep people there that's the question yeah so it's, it's, it's kind of uh, I guess in a sense it's not it's not really a criticism because it did feel like a really good week where lots of stuff was getting done and there were a lot of people in town but as we're saying at the top it just feels like everyone is squeezing their trip to can into a shorter space of time particularly the execs what was interesting um in terms of the footfall because there were obviously were questions uh posed three or four months ago when the the tragedy of of the nice terror attack occurred there were certainly executives at the time who were talking about potentially staying away from the region and Reed Mead and responded by announcing publicly that they would be upping security. That was very, very noticeable. I've never walked along the Quasette and seen uh, so many machine guns. And, uh, you know, it's, it's actually a comforting thing when you know that that is a potential. Um, and it seemed to work very well. No one felt like they were annoyed or getting pissed off yeah, by the I th- situation. I think given what had happened in Nice, no one is going to complain if they have to wait for another two minutes to get their bag checked that's that you know everyone understands why that's happened something so awful happened just down the road you know the town that everyone flies into that has a kind of very similar seafront set up to can so i don't think any there were any gripes there i think the organizers did a really good job in terms of that kind of that bag check you know quick frisk whatever needs to be done before you get in and then within that there were armed soldiers walking about you know heavily armed guys big time patrolling there were armed gendarmes on on horseback but it didn't feel it didn't feel oppressive and i think i think everyone there gets gets why that happened and i think we have to be honest what happened this time is pretty much the new normal all right let's move on to uh, programming so let's start with the formats that were at MIPCOM. It was a funny market. There was a lot of people coming to the market with dating formats. There was a lot of family-focused formats. But the big format 
uh, certainly the, what you'd heard, Stuart, was uh, was one called Curvy Supermodels. Yeah, Curvy Supermodel out of out of Israel. And actually, there's there's always a lot of dating, you know, relationship, fashion formats in all all of those kind of key format categories. There's lots of new shows, but I think what Curvy Supermodel did, and there were a couple of others in in the same vein. This was a kind of a fashion lifestyle show where it wasn't about having kind of a supermodel body or being absolutely perfect. And the fact that, you know, I think the golden rule is as soon as you get three, you're heading towards a trend. There were there were more than three there. So it's something that people are looking at. So if people, if we now see deals roll in, then then perhaps, you know, there's something happening in terms of that being a, a trend in terms of international formats. It was just something that people were talking about. Uh, it, nothing, nothing has dominated the conversation like Rising Star for a long time. I know, Jesse, that's something you've been writing about, looking at how shows are launched at the markets, for example. Maybe that won't happen again. Um, but that that was just one thing that, that was that people were chatting about, I guess, outside of uh, you know, doing the deals. Let's look at a couple of other interesting formats that were there. Uh, ITV and 2.4 were really pushing this time next year. Uh, it's a nice idea. It's effectively someone uh, who wants to change something about their life. Uh, it's a studio format. They'll tell the presenter, who in the British shows, Davina McCall, what they want to do. They go through doors at the back of the studio, and then through the magic of television, they come back a year later, but virtually seconds later, and they will or will not have completed their objective. So they, maybe that's losing weight, maybe that's finding a a long lost relative. There is something along those lines. Two four were going into the market, saying that they sold it to nine territories. They put it into production in nine territories on the basis of the tape which is you know pretty Im- impressive and i had a chat with melanie leach about this and and, and this would make it far and away two fours biggest show i mean for sure if if you know and it has got away in nine territories so this is going to be doing them very very well and it was interesting on the new itv stand which we're going to talk a bit more about later which is very nice very swish uh, very soho house the executives there were very keen to push that particular format, even though it's going out through 2-4 Rights, which is a subsidiary of ITV, rather than ITV Studios Global Entertainment. So they obviously know that they've got a hit on their hands there. Actually, on on that point, Jesse, I guess you could also make the uh, the connection between there also being a separate Talpa stand as well, because, of course, all of these are now ITV-owned companies. The ITV has three different distribution arms at the market, so we as, uh, as nosy journalists can, can smell something there. But... There'll, perhaps there'll be some movement at some point. It certainly hasn't happened yet. Uh, just some other formats that we're doing the business. There was The Story of My Life, which is a Talpa format. Uh, Look Me in the Eye from Red Arrow was picking up some traction. DRG had a show called Animal Attraction, which is about, I, I believe it's basically about like using kind of the things that attract animals to each other to attract a human mate. Story of My Life is an interesting one, actually. And kind of all roads lead back to ITV, it seems. But So yeah, that's the Talpa show, and that's something they were pushing very very heavily so that was a, that was piloted for RTL4 I think in the Netherlands uh, with Wesley Schneider the, the football player and his wife who's a, a local celeb as well the idea is that you get these kind of celeb couples who are very much in, in the limelight and they get aged up through prosthetics and such like that. and then there's kind of a reveal where they see what they're going to look like in 25 30 40 years and 
in the pilot, and I think this is the way Tauper would like it produced. It's a huge emotional moment. So you see these two celebs, you know, like Posh and Bex, effectively looking at each other when they are 80 or 90 years old. Staring into the future. Fremantle were pushing a format which was, uh, it's got the lovely title, and I'm not sure if we're going to bleep this or not, we'll, you'll find out, uh, called Get the Fuck Out of My House. Sure, that's um, not from Vice. <laughs> well, it felt like they were going for that ground. Compare that with the Vice show, fuck, that's delicious. The prize for certainly most wacky format goes to Travel With My Goat. Uh, undoubtedly, and I know what you're thinking, not another celebrity goat herding format. I mean, there's so many of them out there, right? I think I think there's probably some format dispute brewing about this, which is a bad segue into uh, something else that was a talking point at the market, which was format companies allegedly ripping one another off, which I think has been happening as long as format companies have existed. Um, but this time the market kind of woke up to, uh, on the first day, in fact, over the weekend, the news broke that there was a dispute between Abbott Homeri, which is Fremantle-backed, and Zodiac Rights, which effectively, you know, Banerjee Group, about a show. Yeah, exactly. Um, and it's not a great way to start the week. It kind of set things off in a slightly negative tone. But the story sort of hinged on Abbott Halmieri, which is an Israeli company, claiming that they developed a format called Best of All, and I think it was originally called Are You Smarter Than a Crowd, based on the idea that a crowd will always come out with better answers than a person. So it's a studio format. Um, and they were claiming that they pitched this format to Banerjee Zodiac Nordisk, or as I think it was Banerjee Nordisk at the time, in 2014, before the Banerjee and Zodiac merger, um, and that they'd had long talks with Banerjee, but these had broken down at some point. And then earlier this year, DR in Denmark had launched a format called All Against One, which was basically using very similar ideas. So you can see where Abbott Halmieri is coming from, but you can also understand from Banerjee's point of view that there are thousands of formats being produced all the time. You know, who's to say that they took the idea? So you had Halmieri on one side accusing Banerjee of ripping off their format. What was the upshot, Stuart? Well, I think we'll find out more in the next few days where, where that particular case is going. But the upshot was that lots of people who owned formats had a story to tell about how they had been ripped off in the past or things that are actually in process at the moment. But I think the point is there has over the years been these sort of cyclical waves of format disputes. There were certainly periods in the 2000s, early 2000s, mid 2000s, then and then about 4 years ago where you had a whole wave of of these of these things happening and it you do wonder now one has happened, now one has gone public. How many others are going to surface? I mean, I'd spoken to someone who said there are at least 10 cases which are very, very close to going legal at the moment. I, th and I think what happened here is that because this was in the news, then suddenly a lot of other people thought, you know, I've got something similar, we've been involved in a similar situation. So suddenly people might also realise that there's, you know, it's worthwhile getting those stories out instead of settling them quietly, which might have happened. Um, but the actual sense that, you know, one company that created a format is has a problem with another one that's got a format away somewhere else, that that's just not new. But this, obviously this particular case is. Yeah, and, and it, now it's down to Frapper, the, the format's body, really, to kind of prove its worth. Like, you know, this is where it's, it, it's, it claims to mediate on these sorts of things. So hopefully it's doing its job. And hopefully a lot of this stuff will wash over because, you know, it's not good for business. And it's not good for anyone. Apart from journalists. It's wonderful. Keep doing it. Something else you increasingly see at MIP and MIPCOM, I guess, past five years in particular says you know one jaded hack who's been to been there, been going there for many years is that there's a lot of talent in town uh the talent is there for various reasons 
to to meet buyers to help promote a show if it's a big name um, you know even seasoned buyers get kind of you know a bit starry eyed around around celebrities um, and also to meet the press and on that basis Jesse who did you speak to well I'll, I'll preface face this by saying I think the press room was on the Monday certainly the busiest and sort of most celebi starry I've ever seen it that we had um, we had the likes of Hayley Atwell just sort of you know as I was bashing away at a story she's there being interviewed by someone from France we had Shonda Rhimes come in um, so we had all this going on as journalists the, the press room wasn't big enough to accommodate uh, Shonda's uh, enormous entourage there, there was like 20 of them wasn't there yeah it was like more, more of them than journalists yeah <laughs> exactly um, but I did uh, get some some FaceTime with Andrew Davies the original writer uh, of House of Cards so that was before it was on Netflix when it was a BBC show in the early 1990s and who's written you know literally dozens and dozens of series more recently he wrote War and Peace for BBC One and he was there to talk about the remake of, of Les Mis wasn't he and and what was his take on it Jesse? Yeah, so he was basically he was there to celebrate his I think his 80th birthday. Is that right? Yeah, that's and, right. And a, also to a surprise party out ex- there, exactly, um, which you got invited to and I didn't. BBC Worldwide, what's going on? Uh, yeah, so he was there for that 80th birthday and also to yeah uh, talk about Les Mis and how he was reversioning it for television. Uh, Andrew Davies is a man who really cares about story and he hates he really really hates the theater version of Les Miserables he thinks that is absolutely ruined the original Victor Hugo novel and so his big aim with this new series is to kind of reclaim the story I have the same kind of uh, process with, with everything I'm, I, I just try to immerse myself in 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 the work and, and feel my way into it and uh, identify as much as I can with the characters. It's, ve- it's very much I work through the characters, I, I think, and, and what they tell me and um, tell the story through them. In this, Les Miserables, there's a new factor coming in because of the fame of the musical. And, and it's almost a rescue mission. I want to rescue Hugo's masterpiece from, uh, from the musical version. I want people to think they know Les Miserables, but they don't. And now I'm going to you know, tell that story. I mean, Jean Valjean's an extraordinary character. He's like almost like a Shakespearean tragic hero because he's, he's grappling one of the with some of the great big questions in life. You, you know, uh, is it possible to be good? Is it possible to change from being uh, a criminal? You know, because he, when we first meet him, he's been totally brutalized, and he's his attitude to the world is is savagely resentful. I think it's safe to say not impressed with the theatre version. And Jesse, you also had a chat with the actor, producer, documentary maker, and I think we can say hard nut, Ross Kemp. Yeah, I think he was intimidated to be in a room with me, to be fair. Um, all, you know, whatever, 11, 12 stone of me or whatever there is. Yeah, Ross Kemp's been making documentaries for UK broadcasters for years, primarily for Sky. And for a a while now, he's been making a series called Extreme World, where he goes and meets, you know, really, really dark parts of of various societies around the world. He's met, he's come face to face with terrorists. Uh, He's gone into like the African jungles and favelas. He's met some of the, the, you know, the most dangerous people on the planet. And he was telling me about a very strange uh, situation he'd had uh, meeting Mongolian Nazis. They exist. They're out there. 
um, and uh, ha- have a listen to him. He's a very interesting guy. So you must meet these these kind of characters all the time. You've had these crazy experiences. Yeah, it's a good, uh, interesting life. What drove you to do it in the first place? That, that the style of documentary you make, going to these extreme places. I think it was a natural follow-on for making the gangs. I was asked to present while I was acting um, and under contract to ITV present um, a documentary about America's relationship with guns. And during it, I met a guy who was in the Bloods, who'd been shot 26 times, and had honestly been shot at various times in his life, that many times. And I couldn't help thinking that he was the antithesis of what I was seeing on, on, on MTV. He didn't have a Ferrari, neither did he have lots of gold bling, neither did he have a supermodel as a wife. He was very poor. He had a rather large wife with two babies on either hip and a block toilet and was living in probably abject poverty, I would describe. So that was how we started making gangs. Only people at Sky who were involved in, in, the, in, in the commissioning of current affairs. So I went to them with the idea. That coincided me with me finishing my, my, my contract to ITV. And it just really snowballed from there. I, we made 28 gang programmes. Then the Afghan war sort of kicked off and we gained access to British military, we made 15 documentaries there. And it, we, we did specials in, in, in the Middle East and in the Amazon, and we made three programs about piracy. And basically, we, as a team, we were working all the time and we were thinking, well, what do we do? Well, really, what we're doing is we're going to extreme places around the world. So let's make a series called Extreme World. I can't get my head around how you can go into these places and, and sort of because you're very calm that's your kind of your, when you're speaking is it? To these guys. I think I feel well, but, well that's, that's what I was going to ask you I'm, imagine underneath it you must be bag of nerves yeah, talking to these people bag of nerves but yeah, yeah I think um, I think Afghanistan uh, was a life changer um, I think once you've experienced and nothing compared to what a soldier goes through but if you add up my total time there it probably was six months over those five years maybe more actually um, and most of the time we were on the front line and most of the time we were in con- a lot of the time we were in contact with the Taliban. So um, I think once you've gone through that, you know, you, there is not much that's going to shock you, I guess. You know, unfortunately, if you see children suffer or, you know, die uh, or individuals die, though, even though you may have known them only passingly, it has an effect on you. And that, Jesse, that's Extreme World Season 6, which is... Season 6. Yeah, going out through Sky Vision. As well as getting news and views out there and writing lots and being in the press room and all over the place, both of us were chairing sessions. So on the first day of the market, I did the Survival Guide to Brexit, which was... Depressing? Uh, No. No? Little, uh, it, uh, you know, it was really interesting. I had John Enser uh, from Oldswang, John McVeigh from Pact, Amanda Groom from The Bridge, and Richard Johnston from Endemol Shine in the UK. Everyone trying to kind of put put a brave face on on things and talk about how the UK and international TV community can kind of come out of this as unscathed as possible. I, I guess. Um, what were the takeaways? Uh, the takeaways were that. John McVeigh from Pact thinks that essentially what what we provide is very valuable internationally. That will help us in terms of bargaining. But also his point was very much that we can't think about this just as TV. 
which is why he's doing his stuff with the Creative Industries Commission, which is really forming a, a negotiating block, if you like. So it's not just TV, it's games, it's fashion, it's kind of the creative industries full stop, which are worth you know, something like 8% of uh, you know, GDP over here in the UK. Um, but interestingly, and this is a real problem, I think, that the UK TV industry will face, and the creative industries when the government formulates its what's called its industrial strategy it's across nine broad areas and tv media and the creative businesses are not any one of those so in terms of having a seat at the table when we well or rather when the industry goes to government to put its case forward it's not even within that kind of industrial process. So, at, so it's on the outside looking in, really. So really, the first battle is to make sure that we are, that there is a voice with the UK government as the UK government then takes its case to the EU because, you know, the automotive industry, the finance industry, every other sector is doing exactly the same. So I think John's take was really we compete much more effectively as a block and that's something he's pushing for and, you know, he's fantastic at lobbying and, and puts the case very very vocally and articulately however the real issue is that a lot of stuff that is integral to the UK business working properly is about free movement of people as well as free movement of you know goods and, and content effectively um, and these are some of the things that are going to be very hard to secure if we have what's now being called a hard Brexit. Well, my session was slightly less, uh, let's say, existential. I had Chris Rice from WME IMG, Hakan Kuseta from Seesaw Films, and Pancho Mansfield from Entertainment One Television talking about the movement of feature film executives and feature film business models into the television world. So we're not talking Brexit here, we're talking about how the TV and film worlds are becoming one effectively. And this is something we've seen over, let's say, the last five years. You're getting packages where big-name TV stars, let's say Jude Law, uh, for example, whose show's just debuted on Sky, The Young Pope, coming into television, getting involved in these projects very early on so that when you have distributors or packages such as, let's say, WME, which is what they do, going out to people and putting different people in contact they're saying right so you're a broadcaster you could have Jude Law if you're willing to stump up the cash it's a pretty big draw and TV is becoming this very very creative space now in many ways and in many people's eyes it's taken over from the indie film sector as the kind of most creative storytelling platform so uh, there, there is an opportunity there but the question is do these film models do these different packaged models which are not traditional to television actually work in the economic structure that so the international more, tv market for, has. there are a few good examples the night manager being a good one very much so yeah with, with hugh laurie and, and tom hiddleston and i think those guys are setting up the um spy who came in from the cold with paramount aren't they i mean it, often you will hear now that tv is the place for great storytelling for people you know for really great storytelling in a long form manner I mean I also wonder how much that that the reality is that TV is also where the money is now it really depends on where you approach it from so Pancho from E1 has a very interesting take on this which is I think it was different to the other two guys in the panel he's basically coined this term feature TV which is effectively he's saying this is a, another genre of television and it's just a different economic model so he's saying that's what this kind of you know let's say eight part anthology kind of Matthew McConaughey Woody Harrelson true detective sort of thing it's, it's feature TV, it's effectively a feature film played out over a number of hours and the economics are similar to what you would get from a 
feature film albeit on slightly smaller budgets and he's saying that sits alongside your procedurals that sits alongside your you know cable drama your walking deads that sort of thing and they're all different compartments it's an interesting one and and if that's true it's good because it's opening up another avenue of business and one thing in the news actually netflix always in the news but when reed hastings is talking about these kind of big big level tv projects and saying that in the future tv and film will kind of will be there but there will also, uh, I, and I don't know what Reed have been smoking, there will also be some kind of pharmacological alternatives as well. They're just an aside, I, I really don't know the, what the Reed... T- the TV pill? Uh, yeah, quite. So who knows what Netflix is getting is, is working on in its, uh, yeah. in its lab over in, in the States. One final point we wanted to, or a couple of final points we wanted to make uh, about MIP TV. Um, so we knew we knew there was lots of, of screenings, and there was lots of talent down at the market. So Shonda Rhimes... Uh, presented a couple of uh, keynotes and, and presented the second season of The Catch, uh, the ABC show. Keith Sutherland was uh, showing off Designated Survivor, so he was down there with E1. There were screenings for things like Matahari, which is a Russian drama that Red Arrow had at market. Uh, Fox Network's group had Mars, which is a drama doc. Rocky Horror Show was down there also with Fox. But uh, interesting thing uh, being that Rocky Horror and Matahari both and I remember I was wandering past the Palais in both instances when those were being shown uh, and in both cases there was a huge crowd outside uh, and it transpires that what what Reed Medem had done this time was actually letting members of the the Cannes public as well so I guess reaching out to to the locals creating a bit of a buzz on the ground as well but also ensuring that it's actually jam-packed it's a festival movement right that's that's what that's that's moving towards I suppose all of this is about what we're talking about is catching people's attention, right? And in terms of the market itself, it's very difficult to stand out and, and you know, do anything different. A lot of people were impressed by the new ITV Studios stand, which they dubbed the ITV Studios House. And they've called it House definitely because it looks and feels a bit like a kind of Soho house vibe, right? A, a Shoreditch house sort of thing. Um, it was very cool, nice new building right out the front of the Palais, so you couldn't miss it. And I know the, the salespeople there were very happy to be you know, selling up there. It definitely does, what, 20% of the job for you, probably just getting people through the door. But that was good. And it was interesting just because it, it kind of, it really did sum up how, where you are can, I think, probably influence how you feel about doing doing a business deal. Yeah, they had lots of nice outside space. It looked really cool. They had drinks, didn't they? Several, yeah. Several rounds absolutely. of drinks. They, they did a big press event on the Monday morning to kind of show off. And you can see why they would do that. And everyone was suitably impressed. Yeah. And then I guess the other big one was A&E which had, had kind of doubled in size effectively and, and sort of moved over from where it was to take over uh, what used to be the discovery space. I guess really speaks to what A&E are doing because they, they're bringing a lot more to market. In terms of they've got the studio now and that's putting content through to the international market. Yeah, but a lot of the channels groups, arguably the one that vacated that space, don't always seem to put a huge amount of effort behind programme sales, behind distribution and selling the content that they might own the rights to because primarily it's there to service their you know international network of cable channels i think what a&e have done is kind of that's put down a bit of a mark to say you know we're here and we are serious about that and they had a lot of stuff there didn't they had the um a lot of the drama stuff that you'd been writing about jesse yeah they had uh, a new navy seals kind of action come serialized drama called six um They've got a new fantasy drama with Jeremy Renner. So again, we're talking about sort of feature TV, if you want to put it in in Pancho's terms. Um, and yeah, they, they're clearly bringing big ticket drama to the market and they are making an impression for sure. 
Good question. Where were Discovery? Do you know what? I don't know. Discovery, can you let us know where you were? I'm not saying you weren't there. We just happened not to see you. It was interesting, though, because some of the distributors that I was talking to, and I don't know if this was the same for you, Stuart, but they mentioned that it didn't necessarily feel like some of those bigger groups had as many buyers on the ground as normal. Now, again, that's something that Read Medium might dispute. They might you know, have lists that, that prove otherwise. But certainly that was the, the anecdotal evidence. But what they were saying was that wasn't a problem because the number of digital buyers and the people who, or, or at least people from those groups who were buying digital rights and kind of looking at those different kinds of windows and those different kinds of deals had really shot up and they were having much more uh, communication on that side. So it wasn't the case that they weren't having a meeting every half an hour that was fruitful. It was just the people who they were having those meetings with were different. The, the buyer numbers were up and, and I think that, that felt like that was probably the case as well. On the eve of MIPCOM, uh, we had our award ceremony on the Sunday night at uh, the Carlton Hotel. Uh, it was a sit-down affair and it was very good. We got 230 attendees from the technology and content worlds through the door. Um, everyone had was well-fed, well-watered. Prizes were given out. So from our our piece of the uh, of the business world, companies like Content Media, Zodiac Rights, uh, Galmont Television, Red Bull Media House, Keshet and Fox UK all went away with gongs. Commiserations to those who didn't win. Definitely come back next year. We're going to be bigger and better. Um, and just a quick shout to our internal team here. So that's Patricia, uh, Stuart and Andy from DTVE, Kate, Lara, Sophie and our host Andy Batzelier, uh, who was a former Miss Belgium who hosted for us. So thanks to all those guys for uh, for all the efforts, and it, it went down really well, I think. So um, it was it was a good night, and I'm, I'm glad everyone turned up. Yeah, it was fun. It went well, and I think it'll be uh, even bigger next year. So post MIPCOM, uh, often what you have as editors, journalists, is there's a bit of a lull because everyone in terms of international, in terms of distribution, is so desperate to get their news out during and ahead of the market. Afterwards, the sort of deal flow dries up a bit until you start to hear about the stuff that was done out the market. However, the DB world really has, uh, the momentum has, has, has kept up, I think. If anything, it's, it's sped up. Yeah, that's the... right. Actually, so ITV Studios GE clearly had a good market, shiny new stand, felt, everything felt really positive. Back home, ITV, as part of its previously announced cost-cutting plan, said it was shedding, you know, a large chunk of jobs. I think it was it was 120. 120 jobs, so not an insignificant number. That's right, and that was clearly linked to economic uncertainty, which I think we can read as being uncertainty around Brexit. So, you know, maybe, you know, the aforementioned Brexit stuff... Uh, is actually starting to bite as well. Discovery have also reported recently international revenues down. They talked about Brexit as well. So we're starting to see some some tangible effects. I know the wider economic figures you know, reported here in the UK are actually you know broadly positive, but I think we're starting to see some negative Brexit. Yeah, anecdotally, well. it feels like it's not it's not great for business. But I think even that was entirely eclipsed by the announcement over the weekend uh, when we got back and it's kind of the worst time for us as journalists just as we're uh, recharging the batteries it became apparent that AT&T the US telecoms giant was effectively about to buy Time Warner and the deal was signed off uh, over the weekend I think it was an, the, the biggest biggest deal this year uh, irrespective of sector the, yeah the biggest business deal this year 85.4 billion dollars and chucking another chucking 23 billion in debt so you're talking 107 110 120 
you know billion dollars being transferred so it's a huge deal and what it means is that time warner which is one of the you know two or three biggest uh, entertainment companies in the world is now effectively going to be a subsidiary of a telecoms giant in the u.s so time warner of course a company that is no stranger to joining forces with uh, a company in a, an adjacent sector having had you know been AOL Time Warner you know and that integration was a bit of a mess well frankly. I, I, I think it's, it's fair to say it was more than a bit of a mess Jeffrey Bukers who is now the Time Warner CEO described that particular merger as I think the most disastrous merger in business history right? so let, let's do it again <laughs> let, let's try it again let's see what happens this time let's uh, However, how far, that, how far that, does that rabbit hole go that has to get past regulators and I think straight afterwards uh Trump and Clinton well Trump vociferously came out against it Clinton's camp somewhat more subtly which I guess is perhaps indicative of the way those two different parties go about doing things at the moment um, suggested you know there are issues there's a huge media concentration because AT&T already owns DirecTV the satellite platform or one of the satellite platforms over in the state so you're starting to see a lot of power concentrated in, in the hands of one company. Yeah, abs- absolutely. Um, and, yeah. It's, and it's worth looking at Peter Cherning's role in this whole thing. He has a, a joint venture with AT&T. It's called Otter Media, which effectively invests in OTT platforms. And uh, various reports in the US are basically saying that he has been instrumental in the talks between both sides and that he's very well positioned potentially take on a role in the new group although it will be Randall Stevenson who is the CEO of AT&T who's effectively going to lead the merged group and Bukas steps away he will step away at some point although I think he's not it won't be for another sort of 13 or 14 months provided the deal goes ahead in any in any shape or form so presumably uh, Disney are looking at this and thinking we must become the biggest media company we, we in must the world be bigger again. where where are you netflix i mean which is you know something we've talked about on this podcast before that that is a deal that may or may not happen perhaps google's lo- now looking at things or apple well, uh, apple also in the news where tim cook comes out and says they're in quote unquote intensely interested what, what is intense in interest is like it's kind of like interest but a bit more but they've, they've, so they've commissioned some original content haven't they they've got some some drama reportedly in the works we know they've got some unscripted stuff They've bought um, they've bought some shows as they well. They bought the carpool karaoke format, which was a kind of biggish deal. And then they launched uh, then they launched their new TV app, which is actually just called TV. Um, <laughs> that, that is incredibly uh, what's the word I'm looking Apple. for here? That is incredibly Apple. Apple. Yeah. So they launched TV, which is basically an app that allows Apple users to consolidate all of their different kind of TV everywhere services, all of those different sources of content in one app so they launched that however guess what isn't there if you like Netflix or if you like Amazon Prime you Video you, you can't get those that's right but although Netflix is on Apple TV so at least there's scope for those guys to kind of go back in although they told Wired that they weren't considering that um, Amazon's not even on Apple TV and they've also taken Apple TV off their kind of e-commerce site as well so they're uh, all having a little dig at each other really yeah, yeah. I mean this makes that kind of Apple TV smart TV connected TV world just a bit fragmented and it's kind of exactly what it didn't need yeah it's exactly what consumers don't care about isn't it um, which is where Apple has fallen down in the past in terms of television it's kind of it obviously wants to be the leader but it hasn't quite worked out how TV consumers consume just yet so uh, well one thing it won't have if it doesn't have Netflix is the new billion dollars worth of uh, of investment which Netflix has it put out a 
uh, a new share raise, but the first one for about 18 months. Which, which we, we initially thought was 800 million. Yeah, they, they, it was very strange. They announced that they were they were putting together this sort of debt offering of $800 million, uh, and then two hours later amended their own release by saying we weren't that wasn't right, it was actually a billion. Which if I was an investor, I'd be slightly worried that you know, two hundred million dollars has just appeared from somewhere down the back of the sofa. Exactly, but um, the, I, I think, if in all seriousness, the point of this is, you know, Netflix has huge obligations, uh, both in in terms of programming that it's already commissioned and that it needs to pay for at some point, which it wants to be fifty fifty soon, doesn't it? Exactly, fifty fifty original acquisition acquired. versus commission. Um, but it also uh, needs to buy. Well, it's because it because it wants to go fifty fifty. It needs to have a pipeline. It needs to be able to pay for this stuff, or at least you know show the market that it's able to sort of contain all of this stuff uh, at a sensible rate. So it's put out this this new debt offering, and and basically what it means is more very very expensive programming coming from Netflix. I mean, the the thing that Netflix have done, which is brilliant, but also might be now they might be costing it a lot of money is that kind of whole binge viewing thing that sit down and watch five episodes or however many of house of cards or something like that it means that there's a tremendous burn rate so when they launch something original everyone gets excited and it's fantastic but instead of lasting for 10 weeks feasibly you know that that's a weekend's worth of viewing yeah and then you've got to do it again the next weekend or the next month or whatever so yeah i mean look the the big problem or the big question about netflix and we've been talking about this for a long time is you know how much can it contain and how long can it continue doing what it's doing before something has to give because everything costs money and at some point that you know these these payments these licenses are going to have to to be paid although during mipcom actually when they put out their international results after a kind of a rocky period in terms of whether investors were backing it they put out fairly well they put out a very solid set of results with good international growth and there was kind of an immediate 20 percent uptick yeah in, they're in the now they're course. now right back on the sort of you know darling list of wall street aren't they there? that's right yeah. and amazon uh not to be outdone in the we can spend billions on content game uh <laughs> on their latest investor call said that they will have doubled their spend on original content through the second half of this year so they're kind of you know halfway through that process they're rejigging their international stuff they're moving Morgan, Morgan Wondell. Wondell's moving over to he's coming to London, London isn't he um that's right so you know they're, they're putting a lot of weight behind what is going to be their big international launch later this year okay so can is done and dusted the news hasn't stopped and next we are off to Singapore for ATF which is uh, you could say a sort of Asian version of MIPCOM buyers and sellers meeting uh, lots of people who are at MIPCOM will be there as well as a lot of local specific uh, folks as well and then I guess we really have to think about uh, Christmas no nappy my, my honeymoon Jesse's honeymoon <laughs> and nappy so thanks for listening. Uh, as always, uh, I've been Jesse Whittock and I've been with Stuart Clark. Keep checking back on TBI Vision. Make sure you sign up to our newsletter so we can deliver you daily news. The magazines are all out from MIPCOM. They'll be going on online digitally. So if you haven't managed to pick up a print copy, do check those out. Uh, but for now, thanks very much.